Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you're glad to be here today, would you shout amen? Amen. I'm glad that you are here, and I pray that God will work and move and speak in our lives in a very personal way. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapters 4 and 5 for this morning's message. If you've been here in recent weeks, you know that we've been going over the last seven weeks now through the seven churches of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, chapter two and 3, where Jesus speaks very direct words of message to seven literal churches. Throughout his depiction of those messages, we've seen various things that honor the Lord and please the Lord. We've also seen some things along the way that grieve the Lord. As he speaks to these churches, there are times he gives words of acceptance and approval, words of commendation and praise, but there's also times that Jesus had to speak very strong words of correction and even rebuke. But whenever he finishes with those letters, Jesus does something interesting. God does something different as he begins to lead John, the beloved disciple. Now, so far, everything we've read in the book of Revelation has been focused on those seven churches, and with it, we've been able to examine our own lives and even examine us as a church. Are we the church that God wants us to be? But right after the disclosure of those letters, God does something interesting. He brings John's attention and he focuses it upward, not just focus on the world, not just focus on the challenges, not just focus on the perversions of the culture in which you live, not just focus on the persecution that he faced, not just focus on the suffering of the church and all the challenges they faced. For a moment, God pulls back the curtain of heaven and he brings John literally to a place where he has a heavenly vision to see the things of heaven. I wanna remind us loud and clear this morning, we still today live in a fallen world. Just like the seven churches of Revelation saw, we see calamity around us. We see the struggles of sin and of disease. We see the struggle of complacency, perhaps, in our own heart and life. We see the struggle with our own flesh, and we see suffering in the world. We see all these different things. But God in this moment together today, I believe, is pulling back the curtain for just a moment, letting us in to get a glimpse of heaven. What does it look like? What is important there? And how does that glimpse of heaven impact our lives today? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because God tells us in Revelations 4 and 5, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? I want to encourage you today. We're going to begin reading Revelation chapter 4. And when I have you be seated in a moment, please keep your Bibles open because halfway through the message, we're going to turn then to Revelation chapter 5. Listen to what the Bible says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. And after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately, John says, I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. 
around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature like the face of a man, the fourth creature was that of a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, listen to their praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and is to, who is to come. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this time and moment together. God, today, would you capture our heart and our mind, capture even our imagination with just a glimpse of you and your glory in heaven. And may that glimpse transform us today, impact the way we live, impact the way we worship, all for your praise. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. you may be seated. This morning, I wanna to preach to you on the subject, he is worthy. He is worthy. Much of the detail here in this pastor's scripture in Revelation chapter four and in just a moment, chapter five, can be quite difficult for us to understand. It can even be difficult for us to explain because in this moment, God is explaining to us something so profound and something so unexplainable that it's hard for us to grasp in our mind and in our uh, knowledge, if you will. I'm reminded of the illustration of a man who was up in age and he had been very wealthy and very successful in the context of his life and he was very rich and God visited him one night in a vision. He said, now listen, I want you to prepare. You're gonna be with me soon. Get your house in order. I'm calling you to heaven. And so the older man didn't argue at all, but he said, God, if you're calling me to heaven, I'm gonna get my house in order, but would you please let me bring one thing from earth into heaven with me? God denied his request. The very next day, he prayed again to God. And the very next day, he prayed, God, would you please let me take just one thing from earth? Let me take it with me into heaven when that time comes. God finally kind of listened to his prayer and said, all right, you can bring one thing. Whatever you want, you can bring it. I'll let it in. Finally, the old man passed away and he began to stand before the gates of pearl. St. Peter was there and St. Peter began to look at the book of life to make sure the man's name was listed. And sure enough, he had believed in Jesus Christ. He had trusted Christ as a savior. He was ready to come in. And so there he stood with his duffel bag full of his one earthly possession that he was gonna bring into heaven. And Peter said, whoa, whoa, you can't do that. He said, oh, listen, I've been praying. God told me I could take one thing from earth into heaven. Peter checked with his sources, and sure enough, God had granted his request. And so he said, all right, come on in, but we're going to do a check real quick. He opened that bag, and as he opened that bag, he saw it was completely filled with gold bars and gold nuggets. All the wealth this guy had amassed on earth, he brought it with him into heaven. Peter quickly looked at the angels and said, hey, guys, look, there's more pavement, more pavement here in the bag. You know what he was saying? He was saying the reality is there are things that we think of of heaven and we think in the context of what is rich and what is wonderful, what is glorious. And what God is calling us to recognize is heaven is far greater than we can even imagine in our mind's eye. 
Here, as John delivers these seven letters to the seven churches, God then says, now come up here, I want to show you something. Come up here, I have something glorious and grand that I want you to see. Maybe you've been on a hike before and you've kind of gotten ahead of the crowd and you got to the picturesque scene before the rest of the group and you saw it and you came back and said, hey guys, you won't believe, it's beautiful, it's glorious, come see it. That's what God is doing in this moment. The Bible says instantly John was in the spirit and he began to see just a glimpse of heaven. I want you to see three things with me this morning as we begin to focus on the fact that he is worthy. The first thing I want you to see this morning is what we'll simply say are the wonders of heaven. The wonders of heaven. Many of us, when we think of heaven, we begin to think of things like our loved ones that have gone before us. We begin to think of the streets of gold, the gates of pearl. We began to think of the crystal sea. We began to think of angels. We began to think perhaps of personal mansions from John chapter 14. Maybe we envision like so many jokes will tell us that St. Peter is there managing it all, okay? There's lots of things that we think of when we think of heaven. But as soon as John is ushered in, he has, as soon as he gets his glimpse of heaven, he's not focused on the luxuries that we think of. He's not thinking about loved ones that have gone before. He's not talking about streets of gold. Immediately, the Bible tells us that John's attention is directed to the throne and specifically to the one who sat on the throne. So clearly was the throne of heaven the theme of the book of Revelation that in this one book, the word throne is mentioned 47 times. The rest of the New Testament combined is only other 15 occasions. In other words, when God brings John into this moment of a heavenly vision, the thing he can't get his eyes off of is the throne where it is occupied, it is sat upon, it is indwelled by God the Father. And there as John considers this vision of God the Father sitting on the throne, he reveals to us three powerful things about God. The first is this, he envisions the glory of God. The glory of God. Now, there are some who have greatly struggled with the book of Revelation because of the type of imagery that we've read about today. There are some who say, oh, you read this. This can't be a literal interpretation. Therefore, we shouldn't accept it as God's word. But this is God's word. It is not only given to us by God, but it has been preserved and protected by God. What we have here in this moment is, is finite man trying to describe for us the infinite almighty God of heaven. How does a meager man explain the vastness of God? How does a created being fully explain he which has been from the very beginning and always will be? John is doing his best to describe for us the glory of God as he depicts him in, three, in several specific ways. The Bible says loud and clear that he saw him sitting like a jasper stone. A jasper stone was that which was hard and that which was firm and that which, in some ways, if you will, that was rigid. The picture here is of God and his character and his nature, that he sits there like a jasper stone, that the world may change, conflicts may come, kings rise and fall, but God stands firm. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So often in our culture today, somebody say, but pastor, it's 2022. Don't you know what science says? It's 2022. Don't you know the political movement, the progressive this and that? But God is the same. He never changes. 
Not only is he firm like a jasper stone, but he goes on to tell us loud and clear that he was like Sardis in appearance. Sardis in that day was a stone that basically was incredibly reflective of light. It was precious and it was valuable. It was something of great worth. And what John is saying is, listen, when I saw him, the father, sitting on the throne, it was bright and it was shiny like that of immense worth and value. But I love this next statement. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Sounds like a strange statement. You and I today, we see a rainbow. Generally speaking, we see a portion of a rainbow. Just the other day, I was driving down the road with my daughter and it had been raining. And she said, hey, daddy, look, there's a rainbow. And I was looking everywhere to find this thing. And sure enough, finally I found it. And it was, I mean, it's just like a little glimpse, you know, I mean, just like a little thing off in the distance. But when John sees God on the throne, he sees a rainbow, not as we do. It literally completely encircled the throne. It had no beginning and it had no end. It was a powerful picture to show us that there is nothing partial and nothing incomplete in heaven. There is nothing lacking in the presence of the glory of God. And that rainbow was emerald in appearance. That is so different than what we envision when we think of a rainbow in our day. But what I want you to see loud and clear is this. When John got this glimpse of heaven, he was not impressed with the mansions, the streets, the rivers, or anything else we so often think of. He was overwhelmed at the sight of God in his glory. Not only do we see the glory of God, we see the power of God. So often when we think of God, rightly so, we think of him and his compassion and we think of him in his mercy. We think of him in his grace. We think of him in his love. And all those things are true. God has demonstrated those, and we'll see that loud and clear in the next chapter. But as John is given a glimpse of God on his throne, he also has a, a vision of the power of God. Listen to that statement in verse five. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Picture that image for just a moment. We've all been, I'm sure, in a situation where there was a thunderstorm and lightning that seemed to extend across the entire horizons of the sky, and we've been a little bit apprehensive. Something about thunder and lightning can be a bit scary. I grew up in Alabama where it was very, very flat, and when lightning would pierce the sky, it looked like it went miles and miles and miles. I grew up in Alabama where there were tornado warnings, and whenever there was lightning and thunder, you always pause for a moment to assess, where is it? How far is it? Do we need to run for shelter? The image here of thunder and lightning literally dispersing from the throne of God is an image and a depiction of his immense power. Throughout this past summer, we were reading through the book of Exodus and we were looking at how God met with Moses and the Israelites as he would descend upon Mount Sinai. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16, it says this, it came about on the third day that when it was morning, there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. In other words, what we have is a depiction of the manifest presence of God. When God met there on that mountain with Moses, they knew he was meeting there by the thunder and the lightning, even the smoke that was descending. So clear was the power of God that when the Israelites saw his manifest presence, they were afraid. 
There was a reverent awe that came upon them. And the Bible tells them in Exodus chapter 20, they looked at Moses and said, Moses, you go talk to him. You go talk to him because we can't go up there. If we go up there, surely we are going to die. You go speak to God on our behalf. The point is that God in his glory is also a God of all power. And then John tells us about these four creatures, creatures that had a face like the form of, of a man, the form of a lion, the form of a bull, and the face even of an eagle. This sounds strange to us because it's hard for us to envision it. We've never seen anything like this. But did you know in the Bible, this is not the first time that's been recorded. In Ezekiel chapter one, 700 years prior, God gave Ezekiel a vision of the angels of heaven. And as Ezekiel looked on in Ezekiel chapter one, he literally said, as for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion on the right and on the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Now, if this is all read in light of God's power, what we're being reminded of is this. What could be more fierce than a lion? What could be wiser than a man? What could be stronger than a bull or an ox? And what ultimately could be swifter than an eagle? The whole point is this. God is a God of all power and all authority. Even these creatures that brought Ezekiel to a point of pause and wonder at their greatness and their power, even these creatures are bowing in submission and worship to the one who sat on the throne, which brings me to a third point, and that is this. I want you to see the worship of God. I have to confess to you this, this morning that when I was studying this pastor's scripture this week, really over the last few weeks, and reading and studying and reading commentaries and diving deeper into the Greek and all those different things, I found myself very overwhelmed. There's a lot of detail in Revelation chapter four. And in our time together today, we're gonna go through Revelation four and five. But, but this past week as I was studying this and asking, Lord, would you give me clarity? Would you help me to understand? I found myself, for lack of a better term, kind of getting bogged down in the weeds. And then as I kind of stepped away from a moment and came back, I began to realize something. The thing that was getting me caught up was this. I was missing the main thing. Have you ever been so focused on the details of something that you lost sight of the big picture? Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's my problem, all right? The reality is the big picture is this. It is all about the worship of the one who is worthy. So, so as John is watching on, he's looking, he's looking at these created beings and he's looking at these elders. And the Bible says all of a sudden in verse eight, these creatures, they begin to worship God day and night. They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They're worshiping God. Why? Because they know that God is the one seated on the throne. It's a picture of the power. It's a picture of the sovereignty of God. The picture of God on the throne reminds us that his throne has not been abandoned. His throne has not been dismissed. He, has, he still reigns over all of heaven. And even in the context of the earth, even when things happen that we don't understand, even when things happen that might be confusing, even when we may not understand God's purpose, he's always working things together for his glory. It's a picture of the sovereignty of God. Not only do they worship him because he is sovereign, they worship him because he is eternal. They praise him because he is the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. They praise him in verse nine because he is the one who lives forever and ever. He's eternal. 
In our day and in our life, we see kings rise and fall. We see presidents come and go. We see our own titles come and go. But God is eternal. He is immovable. He is unchanging. He has all authority and all power, and he always will. Even this morning, as I was having my time with the Lord, I was reading 1 Kings 13 to 1 Kings 16. And as I'm reading these passages of scripture, there are literally seven kings that rise and fall. They rise and fall. They rise and fall. But in the midst of it all, guess who never fell? God. He was still in control, sovereignly working because he is eternal. But they also praised him because he is the creator I love this statement loud and clear as they declare in verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. I wanna remind us this morning that all of heaven and all of earth were created for one primary purpose, to bring glory, honor, and praise to the one who is worthy. You may be here today and you may not understand God's plan or purpose for your life. You may be here today and you may feel like you're a complete accident. You may be here today and may not have full understanding of why God created you, but I want you to know today, God created you. He gave you life and breath. He continues to give you life and breath and he's done so ultimately for his glory and purposes. You are not here by mistake. We start with this wonder of heaven because this is exactly what God is depicting for John. Could you imagine the encouragement this would have brought John? Can, can you imagine as John would relay this vision to the early church, the encouragement and the comfort it would bring them? They lived in a world much like ours. There was immorality and all sorts of depravity all around them. Even within the church, there was compromises in their doctrine and there was complacency and apathy that was beginning to, to creep in. They live in a world much like ours where there was political chaos and confusion and the Roman government wanted to have all power and they were doing everything they could to destroy Christians and they were facing persecution. John's on the Isle of Patmos, completely exiled. And yet there in that culture where many were discouraged and defeated. They had, had, they had to flee from their homes. They're wondering, God, where are you? God pulls back the curtain for just a moment and he reminds them he is still God. He's still in control. He's still on the throne. He's still sovereignly working. And even in that time of earth, he's still worthy of all praise, honor, glory, and adoration. Oh, the wonders of heaven. Here's the question I would ask for you today. Are you ready for heaven? When you hear these words about the throne of God and his power and authority, does it make you hungry for heaven? First Corinthians says it this way. As it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Do you love him? Are you looking forward? Are you ready? As ready or not, one day we'll be with him. Secondly, I want you to see the weeping of man. If you're still with me, would you say, all right? all right? I want to ask you to hang with me. We'll bring it all together here in just a moment. I know that Revelation chapter four, it can be a bit weighty, but I want us to look now to Revelation chapter five. How in the world does this scene of glory and power and worship turn to a scene of weeping? 
What would it possibly be as, as you're getting a vision of heaven that would bring you to a place of despair and weeping? We see the answer to that in Revelation chapter five. I want you to look with me at verses, uh, verses one through five. We're, we're going to read the whole chapter. Revelation chapter five. Notice what happens as John begins to look closely at the one seated on the throne. Verse one. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Here's the question. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And listen to the answer. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no woman was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that were sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they'll reign upon the earth. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a singular loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Every created thing which is in heaven or on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, all the things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And we'll pause there. Notice for a moment the weeping of man. John is looking at the one seated on the throne. John is looking at the one who the elders are bowing in worship to. They're declaring that he is worthy. And John begins to look and he sees in his hands, his right hand, there's a scroll or a book. And he notices so clearly in that book that it has seven seals. The number seven means that it is fulfilled or it is completed, it is final. In other words, those seven seals means that it's locked up. Nobody can open this. But he also notices that it's written on the front and on the back, which would be very rare for that day. When you write a scroll, you only write on one side. This had writing on front and back. It was a visual depiction that the one who sat on the throne, God the Father, he had a word for the people. He had a plan. He had a purpose. And that writing on the front and back literally meant that nothing was left out. Nothing was incomplete. There was no stone unturned. God had a perfect plan and purpose, both for the world and both for all mankind. But what could it be? What would God's plan and purpose for all mankind be? Some have called this the scroll of human destiny because this was God's plan for all of mankind. 
Some have called this the scroll of promise because in this, this is God giving his promise for his kingdom to come and that all could be a part of it. But then came the question, who is worthy to open the book? Is anyone worthy to open the book? John, here's the question. Is anyone worthy? And all of heaven and all the earth of all creation, is there anyone that's perfect and holy and righteous and true? Is there anyone that's equal with the Father that he could step forward and appropriately accept this book and appropriately loose the scrolls? Is there anyone appropriate that could stand and declare this is the purpose and plan of God? This is how mankind can be a part of his kingdom. Is anyone worthy? John hears the question and we quickly then see his immediate response and that is a response of helplessness. We get the scene, at least the imagery, that the question is asked of the worthiness of creation. And John begins to look, scans the horizons of heaven for that which has been created, but no one's stepping forward. John begins to think about all that have lived on the earth and people that he's known and people that have been before him. No doubt in Wonder, John begins to think of himself. Surely, John would love to do this. John loved people. He had a, a disciple. Uh, he was John the Beloved. He was a disciple of Jesus. He had spent much of his life taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. John desired, could I be worthy? But the truth is, John knew he wasn't. John knew he too was a sinner. He wasn't perfect. He himself in and of himself wasn't holy. He wasn't righteous. He wasn't true. He knew in his own flesh that he struggled with sin and he struggled with rival and he struggled with pride and he struggled with selfishness. He, he knew that he wasn't worthy. The reality is that when the Bible looks loud and clear in Revelation chapter five with that sobering statement, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. God is literally in that moment describing all humanity None of us are worthy. If this would have been our vision and we'd have been there with John, none of us could step forward because the Bible says in Romans chapter three that all of us, not a single one of us is righteous in and of ourselves. Romans 3.23, for all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are equal with the Father. We all have flaws and failures. We have sin, we have struggles. John weeps in despair and helplessness. God has a plan and a purpose. It's written on the book, but it's a mystery. Surely we'll never know. He feels overwhelmed at the thought. But his helplessness quickly turns to a moment of hope. When the Bible tells us loud and clear, in verse five, something interesting happens. Verse five, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. John, you, you don't have to grieve. You, you don't have to be in despair. You don't have to be overwhelmed with hopelessness. John, John, I want you to open your eyes. Pay attention. There's something important. Stop weeping. Behold, which literally means open your eyes. Take it in is the idea. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book 
and it's seven seals. John, we, we know that you're not perfect, buddy. We know that you've fallen short. We know that you've sinned against God. John, we know all of creation. We know your friends and those that have come before you, those that have come after you. We've all, we know you've all fallen short, but we want you to know you don't have to grieve anymore. There is one who is worthy to open the book. There is one who has conquered. There is one who has overcome. And by the way, he is the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Please understand in this moment, John knew what this meant. He's describing Jesus. John, you don't have to be in despair. You don't have to be in hopelessness because there's one who is worthy, buddy, and you know him, and his name is Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. I don't know about you, but it's amazing to me in scripture how you can study from the Old Testament all the way to the very end of the book of Revelation and find this incredible promise of God to one day bring a Messiah, the savior of the world, through the line of David. So you go back and study the Old Testament, you begin to study God's promise to David. The Davidic covenant would be that God would establish a king of every generation after David, and it would be through that kingship that one day he would send his son as the savior of the world. In Matthew chapter one, this past year, as we were going through that Christmas season, one day we focused a little bit on Matthew chapter one as God has given that chapter of scripture that everybody just loves. You know, it's that chapter of scripture where it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. Don't you love that scripture reading, right? He was a daddy and he was a daddy and he was a daddy and he was a daddy, right? I was like, whoa, what do we, God, what in the world does all this mean? Matthew chapter one is crazy as God is giving us these begats, so to speak, who's your daddy moment, if you will. In Matthew chapter one, verse six, listen to what God says. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. There's a little bit of David's story. Keep going all the way down to Matthew chapter one, verse 16, 10 verses later, in David's line, we come to this statement. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the what? Messiah, the anointed one, the one that they've been looking for all throughout the Old Testament. When's this savior gonna come? When's he gonna rescue and redeem us? What's he going to be? And the Bible depicts for us in Matthew chapter one that this child to come is, by the way, none other than Jesus himself. Jesus grows into a man. He begins his earthly ministry as he's going into Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 21, verse nine. Listen to this praise that the people give to Jesus by God's divine plan. The Bible says this, the crowds going ahead of him, those who followed, they were shouting, Hosanna to the what? Son of David. Wait a second, wait a second. I thought his earthly father was Joseph. This is confusing. When they were saying Hosanna to the son of David, they were saying, listen, we recognize you are the coming Messiah. You are the savior of the world. You're the one that God has promised long ago. All the way to the final chapter of Revelation, Jesus says of himself in Revelation 22, verse 16, I am the root and I am the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. John, there's hope, buddy. We know that you've sinned. We know that you've fallen short. We know that none of us can go open that scroll, but there's one who is worthy. He's the one who overcame. It's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Something so powerful happens next. Listen to what the Bible says in Revelations chapter five. And suddenly, you get, here's the, the, the imagery is this, and suddenly, I saw 
Between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. In other words, John is scanning to look and find, is anyone worthy? Anyone perfect, holy, righteous, and true? He's been comforted. Hey, there's one who's worthy. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know what John failed to see? Right in front of him, between those living creatures and the throne, the only way to the Father, there was one already standing. John was looking for a lion. Where's the victor? Where's this all-powerful? Where's this fierce warrior? But suddenly he looks and realizes it's Jesus standing as a lamb that was slain. I want you to see finally the wonderful Savior. I, I think John in this moment is a bit in awe now, 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 don't be surprised. I mean, John had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. John had witnessed all those miracles. After all, in this moment, John is in a place where he had been with Jesus. When Jesus would tell them about how he would die, he had been with Jesus that entire time. He was there the night that Jesus was taken into custody. John was there that day when Jesus was on the cross stretching out his arms and giving his life for the sins of the world, and yet he still seems to be amazed at what he sees, the lamb standing as if slain. I want you to see three things about this wonderful savior and we'll close our time together. The first thing I want you to see is just simply this. It is the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus steps forward and he takes the scroll or the book. And as soon as he takes this scroll and this book, the Bible tells us loud and clear, verse eight, that the creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden balls. They began to worship, sing a new song. Listen to what they sang. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood someone and something specific. What the elders are praising God for in this moment is this. They're looking at Jesus and they're recognizing that Jesus was equal with God the Father. He was God in human flesh. He was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous and he was true. Yet for our sake, for the sake of all who had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, remember all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of our sin is death. There's no way we could get to God. There's no way we could be in heaven. There's no way our sins could be forgiven unless there would be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute who would come and give his life as a ransom for us. They praise Jesus as the lamb that was slain, recognizing that he, like an Old Testament sacrifice, was given as an offering, that he was that lamb who came and willingly gave his life for us. I don't know that there's any better depiction of that than what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 53. Look at the words of scripture. They'll be here on the screen. God gave the prophet Isaiah a vision of this lamb to come, Jesus. And here's what he said. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. 
He was pierced through for our transgressions. That's yours, that's mine. He was crushed for our iniquities. His chastening for our well-being, it fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to protect himself. He willingly did this. Why? Listen to what it says. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus willingly came and he came for the purpose of giving his life for your sins and for mine. And that's why when Jesus was walking along the road that day, he's beginning his earthly ministry. John the Baptist, the forerunner, looked at Jesus from the distance and he said, behold, there is the Lamb of God. Behold, there's the long way to Messiah. Behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew in that moment that Jesus was the one who was coming to give his life for the sins of all mankind. Which brings us to a point, not only of the sacrifice of Jesus, this wonderful savior, I want you to see the salvation of Jesus. Who is it that can be forgiven? Who is it that can be saved? Who is it that can be in heaven with the Lord? Who is it that can one day be before his glory? Who is it? And the answer is, it is available to all creation. Listen to what the elders praise in Revelation chapter five in this verse, loud and clear. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and people and every nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Please understand what this verse is saying loud and clear is this. Our salvation is not dependent upon our background. It's not dependent upon our religious heritage. It's not dependent upon our language. It's not dependent upon the nation in which we're raised. No, no. All mankind can be saved because Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of all the world and he invites us all to believe in him. John 3, 16, the most elementary way of saying it says it simply this way. For God so loved the few. That's the theology of some. God so loved the what? The world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the few, no, but that the world might be saved through him. That does not mean that all will be saved. Many will reject, but all can be saved because of the sufficient payment of Jesus Christ. The final thing I want you to see is the supremacy of Jesus, and we'll close. The supremacy of Jesus. Revelation chapter five ends in much of the same way that Revelation chapter four ended. But we see a climactic moment in Revelation chapter five. In verse eight, in verse nine, it's the four creatures and the elders who are giving praise to God. Now remember the word worship means worth-ship. It literally means that we are giving worth and we are expressing worthiness, our, our praise, our adoration, our affection to the one who is worthy. That's the idea of worship. In, in verses eight and nine, it's the elders and it's these creatures that are bowing and worshiping God saying, worthy are you, Lord. 
But then it takes on a climactic moment in verse 11. John looks and he sees myriads of angels, thousands and thousands of angels in one voice saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But listen to how he closes. Talk about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. And every created thing, everything of all creation, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things that were in them, I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Who's the lamb? It's Jesus. And to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The supremacy of Christ. Picture the scene for just a moment. As John is watching and looking, he begins to realize and see in his vision a moment. We kind of expect that these elders are going to worship him. Maybe we even expect that all the angels, these thousands and thousands of angels, as far as the eye could see, they're all gathered together in one voice and they're saying, worthy are you, lamb. Worthy are you who was slain. Worthy are you of glory and honor and praise. But the very next moment, John envisions all of creation. Everything in heaven, everything on the earth. He even says everything under the earth, everything in the sea itself. All of creation made a right. All of creation attuned to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of creation saying, you, Jesus, are worthy of glory and honor and praise. Philippians chapter two reminds us there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are many today who will resist Jesus. They will reject Jesus. They will want nothing to do with Jesus. But the Bible tells us one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But for many in that day, they will acknowledge his lordship just before they experience his judgment. But the truth of the matter is today, we don't have to wait until eternity to bow our knee and declare him as Lord. We can humble ourselves today. We can bow our hearts today. We can worship him today for who he is and for the reality that he is worthy. Scottish preacher Eric Alexander said it this way, Christ will indeed be exalted in heaven, but today he must be exalted in the hearts and lives of all who trust him as Lord. My question this morning as we go into a time of reflection and hopefully a time of response is simply this. Is Jesus your Lord? Are, are you really surrendered to him? Are you truly living your life as an act of worship to him? You know, it's amazing in this moment that when John sees the perspective of heaven and he sees everyone bowing in worship to the Lord as it should be, I cannot imagine but to think of how different that image was than the reality that he saw in the fallen world in which he lived. But the reality of that vision 
would radically shape the way that John would worship for the remainder of his days. My hope for us today is that we have a fresh glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory, that we see him as the lamb who was slain to rescue, to redeem us, to save us. So that we not only say Jesus is my Lord, but that we live a life that reflects it's true. Do you? All of the building, can we bow our heads together? Lord, thank you for this morning and for this time together. Lord, uh, this is a very unique passage of scripture and frankly, I think it's challenging for us because that scene in heaven is so different than what we see around us today. But God, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see, to see you in all your glory. God, would you but just give us a glimpse And might that bring us to such a place of awe and worship and devotion that our lives be radically transformed and changed. Lord, I I, I see these elders and I see all of creation in this passage bowing in humble submission and worship, declaring that you alone are worthy of glory and honor and praise. And it brings me to a place of conviction so often in my life I get distracted so often in my life I start to pursue my kingdom so so often in my life it's, it's easy to worry and fret about so many things here in this world God help us to walk by faith knowing Jesus is our Lord and Savior and living daily for him I pray, God, that our worship of you would not be some lip service Sunday morning thing, but they would be truly seen in our lives surrendered to you. Have your way in us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.